0: Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Anna Danforth, on the challenges and blessings of raising a family overseas. When
1: we first moved to Lesotho, even though we'd grown up in Africa, we'd heard a lot of horror stories about security risks of living in Lesotho. And um, one of the first nights that we were there, we heard some noises outside of our windows. And we didn't have burglar bars on our house yet like a lot of other families did. This was a scary situation for us because we didn't know if this was going to be a home invasion situation or if it was just a goat running around outside or what.
0: Anna Danforth, next. Families move overseas for a number of reasons. Missionary or military service, business, or just out of adventure. Whatever the family's motivation, Anna Danforth wants their move overseas to be successful. She's written Raising a Family Overseas, Building Connection with Your Family and Host Culture During Transition. She and her family serve as missionaries in South Africa. They're currently living in Iowa on furlough. Anna, tell us a bit about your background.
1: Thank you for asking. Yeah, I grew up in Cameroon. My parents were with Wycliffe Bible Translators, so I grew up in a small village, and my parents translated the Bible into the Noni language. Um, I met my high school sweetheart and now husband, Sam, in geometry class on the mission field, and then we turned around and decided that we felt the call to missions as well, and so we have been serving in the Southern African region for the last 10 years um, where we raised our two kids, Elena and Sawyer.
0: And you're home for a year, and and what are you going to be doing while you're home in, uh, well, if it's fair to call it home, in Iowa?
1: <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> it is fair to call it home. Um, when I was growing up, we always came back on furlough to Iowa, so we are here uh, doing our fundraising. We're going around and reporting to the churches that support us and the individuals who send us overseas and are part of our ministry impact. So, um, it is great to make those connections with them again um, and just to be loved on by them and refreshed by them.
0: How many total years would you say you've, you have you have lived in Africa?
1: Uh, 23. So 13 of my childhood years were in Cameroon, and then the last 10 years here have been between Lesotho and South Africa.
0: Okay. Well, what prompted you to write uh, Raising a Family Overseas? I don't think I've seen a book like this before.
1: Um, actually, even though I grew up overseas, um i I really felt the call to help other families respond to the matthew twenty eight go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Um, and a lot of families didn't know how to do that. We have a lot of the science on what it's like to go as a missionary and how third culture kids, which are kids who grew up overseas, are impacted by growing up overseas. But we were kind of missing this practical stuff on, How do you actually do that? What does that actually look like? Um, What prompted me to write this book was actually the faces of the women and the men in my training course when we were about to head overseas. We did missional training, and I looked around at the faces of the parents of young families, and they had a lot of questions about how ministry overseas would impact their family life and their kids. And I remember being that parent, too. Um, So, the Lord has given me a passion to help families thrive overseas. That started when I was a teacher at the Africa Orientation Course in Cameroon. Um, And then that has just built over the years, and He's used different life experiences uh, between my own background and my husband's, who is also a third culture kid, to help equip parents um, who want to raise their kids well in an overseas context.
0: And so, we're talking about uh, what is commonly referred to as expats. Can you kind of define that for us?
1: Absolutely. So an expat is someone who lives in a culture that is not their own. The full word is an expatriate. So we have expat families, expat parents and expat kids. Um, And those are all the types of people that I interviewed um, for this book. I had over 100 people who are living in 40 countries around the world who contributed to this book, and they would all be called expat families. And their kids would be called third culture kids.
0: So you surveyed over 100 families in 40 countries around the world. Tell us, I mean, obviously time would not allow us to talk about all of them, but, uh, but some of their uh, situations.
1: So I wanted to get a broad spectrum. Although the book is written from my perspective as a missionary kid and now a missionary, I wanted to make sure to include the voices of lots of different expat families. So I interviewed uh, people who serve in the military, as well as who serve in missions, Uh, people who moved overseas for educational or professional reasons, also people who just moved overseas for adventure. Um, I also have a few refugees and immigrants um, as well for different purposes. And so I think that that gave me kind of a broad spectrum of different types of people um, who are serving overseas. Oh, also business people, people who are in international business raising their kids overseas. I was really pleased to get a wide variety of generations as well as multicultural families as well. So I had first, second and third generation expat families, which really give kind of a richness to um, the, the questions that I had to answer and um, just the voices that they wanted to share.
0: Well, it's interesting that uh, as you say, you are, did you say second or third generation? Uh, in terms of living in Africa, expat?
1: Oh, I would be considered a second generation.
0: Okay. And your parents were Wycliffe missionaries, as you said, and and so obviously there must have been a process of, of prayer and consideration of, is God actually leading you to, you and your husband to stay there uh, or to return to the U.S.? Can you talk a little bit about, I, I know your book doesn't get a, a lot into this, but how God led you to continue to stay in South, or in, well, in Africa and then eventually into South Africa?
1: Absolutely. We both saw the positive impact that um, community development and uh, language preservation had through our parents' work. Um, And we definitely believe in the call to um, share the gospel message with least reached and unreached people groups, as well as people who just don't know the Lord. Um, We believe that we would work best in a cross-cultural context because we grew up in a cross-cultural context. So we wanted to go back to Africa. We both thought that we would be serving in Francophone Africa or French-speaking Africa um, because I grew up in Cameroon and my husband grew up in the Democratic Republic of Congo. However, when we were doing our missions training with Mission Aviation Fellowship, we were assigned to um, the Southern African region and we served with them for a little bit before we transitioned to HELPS ministries. Um, My husband and I both knew that we wanted to be missionaries from the time we were in high school. Um, and uh, I was hoping to be in education, and he was hoping to be in aviation. Mm. We've served somewhat in those roles and somewhat in other roles as well, but the, the goal has always been to use whatever platform we're using to share the gospel.
0: And, and what are your current roles right now in South Africa? Did you say you're in, you're in education?
1: I have, I have served in education. My husband and I co-founded a ministry called Titus Auto Center, which exists to spiritually equip and technically train aspiring mechanics in South Africa. That ministry is on hold while we're here on furlough at the moment, Um, but essentially we exist to target the 50% unemployment rate in our community and share the gospel with people who don't know about Jesus.
0: Well, the book is Raising a Family Overseas, Building Connection with Your Family and Host Culture During Transition. My guest is the author, Anna Danforth, and she um, grew up in uh, Africa, her parents were missionaries. As she's explained it now, she and her husband and two children are there doing the same thing. And you write in your book, Anna, and of course, it's in the subtitle that connection is the basic premise of the entire book. It's your metric for success. Can you can you tell us why? Wh- what do you mean by connection, and why that's so important?
1: Moving overseas is very destabilizing for, especially children who are so impressionable. And that destabilization can cause a lot of long-term stress in the life of a child or trauma that we're still learning about um, as we study third culture kids. I believe that an antidote to um, some of that destabilization is forming deep connections within your family. I believe that started with God. He connected with us. He sent his son to connect with us. um, And we can model that with our kids. I have seen a lot of families who have gone through transition, even traumatic transition, who've gone on to raise healthy and well-adjusted third culture kids and adults, Mm -hmm. if they have remained in tune with their kids and if they have remained connected with their kids through that process. So my hope is that more third culture kids will have a positive family and host culture experience if their parents are well-prepared on how to help them do that.
0: Can you, you, and obviously there's a lot more to it, but can you touch on a few keys to um, maintaining that connection with your kids as you all move to uh, a new culture?
1: Absolutely. One of the best ways I have found and one of the easiest ways is to maintain eye contact Um, when you're talking with your kids. uh, It's actually what my first chapter is about. Um, I think it's a great place to begin for parents who don't know what else to do or if they are questioning whether they are parenting in a meaningful way just go back to eye contact. It's one of the best, most meaningful ways that you can connect on a deep level with your kids and make sure that you're in tune with them. Um, Some of the parents that I interviewed and some of the children that I interviewed for my book went through traumatic events such as evacuation due to civil war in countries in Africa. And um, I had the opportunity to interview them years after this and see how well adjusted they were, how that process was for them. And so many of them, speak positively about their time overseas due to the connection that they had within their family and that deep rootedness that they felt. Whereas other kids, even if they had a really positive experience overseas, when the connection family or the family connection was suffering, they tended to not have quite as positive of a view of their growing up uh, time overseas.
0: And of course, that, that whole issue of eye contact, that would apply to really parents anywhere in any context, I would think.
1: Exactly. That's actually something that I keep hearing from readers. I'm getting some reader feedback now. I'm hearing from parents all over the world, including ones who live in their home culture, and they're saying, "Hey, this is a great parenting book. It's not just for people living overseas."
0: <laughs> well, Anna, your book is divided into into three sections. And can you tell us what those sections are? How you arrived at those?
1: I wanted this book to be an easy resource for families who are going overseas. There are a lot of families who do not have time to delve into something huge and deep. Um, And so this is a quick reference guide in a sense. I divided it into three sections. One is before you go, one is going, and then the third one is once you get there. So that way, if you are a week before you're going and you get this book, you don't need to read necessarily the previous chapters. You can hit right, uh, you can go right to that section that talks about actually traveling on the plane, how to handle layovers, how to handle movement in the plane and so on. Or if you get this book well before you're going and you're a missionary who's fundraising, you can skim through the chapter that talks about how to handle awkward questions in a group setting at a church when you're trying to fundraise. These are all things that people wanna know how to do. So it's set up for the reader.
0: Talk about that. I found that to be a particularly interesting uh, point uh, in your book. Uh, if you would talk about the uh, the fundraising aspect, especially as a missionary, of course, if you're a business person overseas, that's that's not applicable. But as a missionary, it is. It, what, what would be an awkward uh, question or one that maybe would be inappropriate? You might say.
1: Sure. So uh, a lot of people mean well when they ask uh, missionaries questions, and. Questions that missionaries can answer more privately or in a smaller group setting. Um, and then there are questions that uh, maybe shouldn't be answered. Any question that kind of invades the privacy, especially of your children, mm-hmm. I would caution parents to not answer. Just because you're a missionary and just because this church might send you doesn't mean you have to answer every question. But there are polite ways to handle that. So if you're at a church potluck and you're you've got 150 people in front of you and someone says, how is your daughter's anxiety or how is your son's, you know, whatever the case is. Mm -hmm. Say, thank you so much for asking all third culture kids experience, um, experience this life overseas in different ways. We really appreciate how you pray for our family and just keep it, you know, simple while being kind to whoever is asking the question, but not compromising um, the connection that you have with your kids. Fundraising is something that I feel passionately about because this book is about connection. And I believe that there are good and deep ways that we can connect with our donors without necessarily compromising the privacy of our kids who will go on to live their own lives that might have nothing to do with missions later on.
0: And in terms of that uh, piece, that first one about preparing to leave, uh, now, in some cases, I, th- I think in, in terms of your family, you there was training provided. But in other cases, particularly for those in, in business, maybe the training isn't, isn't so much. But can you talk about the role of, of training and, and preparation before actually moving to uh, a host culture?
1: Well, if training is offered through your organization, take it and take it seriously. Our training went through a, a lot of different things, including psychological uh, training, aptitude tests, uh, personality tests, all kinds of stuff. It took about a year and a half just to do the training, mm-hmm. safety training, all kinds of stuff. What was it? Security training. One of the ways that you can set your family up for success is to really take those those key training uh, concepts and apply them to your family. If you don't have access to training, that is A-OK. You can read my book and you can read other books about going overseas that will you, set you up for success. One reason that I find the training so crucial is that... Um, you kind of really hit the grind, especially if there are psychological tests or aptitude tests, uh, personality tests. They will help you learn how to work with a team that is multicultural. Um, It will also help you know how to handle conflict within your own marriage or how to raise a third culture kid whose needs are very different than your own. Um, These things I found very helpful. I also saw as a former teacher at the Africa orientation course um, that it was we kind of got the cream of the crop of people who had been vetted through um, some pretty rigorous training. So I think it plays a huge role, but for some families, um, they don't have access to that kind of thing. There are a lot of free resources out there online that they can look into.
0: Well, this this next uh, question, of course, is a a huge area and your book talks a lot about it, but that third issue of living in a new location and you talk about going from scary to thriving and just to give people a little bit of a <clears throat> a little bit of an insight what would be scary in a new culture
1: everything okay <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a really good question because what scares you might not be what scares your husband might not be what scares your kids and likewise what scares your kids might not be what scares you and so you really need to be in tune with what um, is kind of triggering each other in your family so that you can kind of minister to each other um, kindly so um When we first moved to Lesotho, even though we'd grown up in Africa, we'd heard a lot of horror stories about security risks of living in Lesotho. And um, one of the first nights that we were there, we heard some noises outside of our windows and we didn't have burglar bars on our house yet like a lot of other families did. This was a scary situation for us because we didn't know if this was going to be a home invasion situation or if it was just a goat running around outside or what. Looking back, I can handle a lot of noise outside my window now because I know what to expect. But when you have no idea what the noises are or what the looks are or what the different things are signaling, you don't know how to interpret whether or not mm-hmm. they're dangerous. So it takes time to settle into that and figure out what's scary and what's not.
0: And then in terms of just the, the culture, you always hear of cultural faux pas, whatever they may be. Uh, and, and is that a lot of that uh, taken care of in the training or is it you would kind of have to pick it up on the fly?
1: That really depends on the mission organization that you're going with. Um, I know a lot of people, when they decide that they want to join the mission field, they want to get there as soon as possible. And they will intentionally seek out mission organizations that have the least amount of training so that they can short circuit that process. I definitely don't recommend that because when you get overseas, those first impressions make a huge difference on how well you integrate into the community and the types of relationships you're going to build. So if you go through cross-cultural training with your mission organization, you'll learn a lot of ways to uh, be more culturally sensitive so that you can have a longer lasting, deeper impact once you get there.
0: Uh, And you say in your book, uh, Anna, your book is Raising a Family Overseas, to be careful of or to watch judgment toward your new country, that it might be easy to do that. Can you give an example of where such judgment might come into play?
1: So everything is new. um, And one thing that I encourage readers to do is to understand that everything exists for a reason. You might not understand that reason for the next 10 years. (laughs) It might not be a good reason, and it might not be a good reason that serves the culture well. However, there is a reason. One story I tell in my book is of a young family who came out to Cameroon when I was teaching at the Africa orientation course. And they had to go out and live with a family in a rural village for two weeks in their home and be hosted by them. At the end of that two weeks, the young dad came and talked to me. He asked me, um, why do the people cook on these little kitchen fires in a kitchen where there's just a ton of smoke? Um, It is very uncomfortable. There's a lot of smoke. It's getting in your lungs. It's getting in your eyes. And he thought, why don't they just build a chimney? Mm -hmm. From his limited cultural understanding, that made a lot of sense. So I said, well, everything exists for a reason, right? And I said, you know, up in the loft of that kitchen is where they dry all of their corn and drying that corn is going to last them for the whole year. So they need to be using that smoke um, to dry their corn. Additionally, malaria is the number one killer in Cameroon at the time. And in those kitchens with all that smoke, there were no mosquitoes because of all the smoke. So it was a lifesaver for those families, even though the smoke was a bit inconvenient. I really appreciated his stance of asking out of humility and not having some white savior complex of wanting to come in and just build those people a chimney and save them from the smoke, um, because that would have done more damage than good in the long term.
0: And your book, of course, is full of practical tips for families. You've been giving these throughout, uh, and, and of course, there's so many different countries of the world that you can live in, potentially as a missionary or as a business person or military, and, and sometimes they're moving from country to country every few years. But just in general, are there a few other uh, uh, broad practical tips you might you might give for those, uh, those families?
1: One of the sections that I've heard readers um, talk about the most is the one of scheduling your last few weeks in your home country. Um, And you may learn things in here, even if you've been overseas for many, many years, you may learn things in here that will help you transition even better. For example, I talk about blocking off your last three days um, and not allowing, I mean, you can choose your amount of time, but not allowing anything to happen in those three days, really devoting yourself to your family, your kids, and any last minute logistics that come up because they will come up. I also talk about how to handle those last few times that you hang out with your friends and they say, oh, I'll see you one last time. Well, no, you, you won't. Um, and you need to be able to say, I really hate that this is goodbye. I've loved how you've been a part of my life and I appreciate this about you. But to really create that closure, otherwise you will have people knocking on your door your last few days there and really robbing your attention from your kids who need it the most.
0: And uh, in terms of well, this is a, a, a term you hear a lot when people go overseas and they return that of culture shock. Can, can you talk about that? Uh, the reality of that moving to the new location. But then I'm also wondering. Here you are back in the U.S. Uh, I think you talk about that a little bit when you came back at one point to go to college. I think. But uh, it can it can go both directions.
1: Absolutely. So moving overseas, um, one thing we talk about is criticism and what I call sandpaper. When you get overseas, everything is going to be different because you're going to be facing culture shock. And it's often not the big, huge things or the big traumatic events that really wear us thin. It's really the sandpaper. It's the little things that rub in the same place over and over again in your life that begin to wear you thin. So we talk about pitfalls of that and how to avoid criticism um, in the long run, and how to deal with that and how to um, identify it in a spouse or in your kids um, and then how to deal with that in an appropriate way. The reverse can happen too. Coming back to your home culture, you might've gotten used to some things overseas or some things that you really appreciate about the culture overseas and you come back and you're kind of shocked by things that you didn't realize when you lived in your home culture. And that can be a hard adjustment. Um so so we talk a lot about patience and we talk a lot about uh really taking time to take things before the Lord but then also having safe people that you can talk to who will walk through those things with you without judgment but who also really believe in your mission and in your call so that they can support you in that.
0: So are are you are, are your family uh you, your husband and your kids are you all US citizens?
1: We are all US citizens. My husband was born in Congo but he is a US citizen. And I only moved to Cameroon when I was seven.
0: And so you use the phrase uh, earlier on, or we defined it that of third culture kid, which you certainly are, having grown up as a missionary yourself. And now your kids are third culture kids. Um, Does that? I'm wondering how your kids are. uh, Can you tell us their ages and how they're responding to all of this? Sometimes you hear the kids have difficulty deciding. Am I, you know, am I an American? Am I an African? Or what is my culture?
1: So my kids are 17 and 18 right now. My daughter just started her first year of college, and my son is a senior. And they are third culture kids. And under third culture kids is the subcategory of missionary kids. So they are both categories. Um, And they went through their own phases of transitioning back here to the U.S. It was a little bit more difficult for my daughter because she really, really loved life in Africa. My son did too, um, but he just kind of floats between cultures a little bit easier. My daughter had to grapple with the things that she was missing and the things that she grieved losing. Um, And then she was able to go back uh, in February. Actually, she made a trip back and that was kind of her goodbye trip, which she found really helpful in closure um, for that. So she is hanging on to the things that she likes about South African culture, such as having friends over. Um, She calls adults by aunt and uncle or Mr. and Mrs. instead of their first name. So these are just things that she's decided to hang on to. Um, and then she has re-adopted things about American culture that she appreciates as well. So she's kind of making her third culture, which is why we call it that.
0: And I, I probably should have asked this before before now, but can you talk about the role of the Lord, your faith, and the local church in helping you and your family to adjust and thrive in in a new culture?
1: I read an incredible book called The Mind of a Missionary by Dave Joannis recently, and it talks about how we really need to be propelled by our love for God and our adoration for God, that a love and a sense of urgency for the lost is not enough to keep us on the field. Once you hit that suffering, once you hit things that rub you wrong, um, and you realize what you may be missing out on in your home culture, um, there needs to be something much, much deeper that is propelling you to stay overseas. Um, That doesn't mean that people who come back from the field don't have that love for the Lord, there are a lot of factors that that uh, play into a decision like that. But um, first and foremost, my husband and I each needed to have our own deep relationship with the Lord, and then to have a sense of urgency for the lost as well. Um, and to really, um, to be okay with the ways that our lives would be changed by following the Lord to a different culture. Um, so that is kind of where where we came from and we prayed through that all along. We happen to have very supportive family on both sides, his parents, my parents, and our siblings. Um, and not everybody is able to have that. And so um I know that other families will reach out to other safe people who can support them in that mission. But the Lord has um taught us a lot about himself over the years. Um you may think that you're going overseas to make some big impact for the Lord, and hopefully you do, but you will also find that your understanding of God will change a lot um, in in better and deeper and richer ways that draw you into closer communion with him. And so that is my prayer for people. Um, this book is just a book. It's just a tool to help them stay overseas if they can, but but really it's to help them fulfill that calling um, to serve in a capacity, whatever that capacity is, and to serve the Lord well.
0: Do you and your husband have role models that you look to, either present or in in, um, in history?
1: Um, it's going to sound a little cheesy, but our parents. <laughs> uh, you know, when you live in the home of people, you are up close and personal with what they're doing well and how they're failing and i can say that what our parents did well and how they failed is something that we only wish we could model um and replicate because they they just they craved the lord on every level of their lives they met people well they were culturally sensitive these are all things that we um really appreciated about them and even when you're living up close with people and you see where they fail if you can see them fail well that's pretty good in life Um, So we've definitely been blessed in that area.
0: How do you hope God uses this book?
1: I hope that this helps more families be healthy in their call to to work and live overseas, whether it is in a missions capacity or some other capacity. I hope that more families will be healthy during transition and that more kids who grow up
0: overseas will have a healthy experience and will love the Lord
1: because of it.
0: You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Anna Danforth, author of Raising a Family Overseas Building Connection with Your Family and Host Culture During Transition. She and her family serve as missionaries in South Africa. They're currently living in Iowa on furlough. She speaks English, French, West African pidgin, and she says she understands some lingala. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Alistair Begg encouraging Christians to live countercultural lives by explaining one of Jesus' famous sermons. The real danger in it is that we see this as just a sort of form of moralism. If you'll do this, then maybe Jesus will let you into his kingdom as opposed to what is actually being conveyed by Jesus. Here are the evidences, here are the marks of kingdom living. Here is the impact that comes when an individual or a community um, bow their knee to me and trust entirely in who I am and what I've done, that the, that the outflow is from there. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.